Man of Steel, Answers, Insight, Commentary, Episode 60, Viewpoints, Open Mind, Part 1. I have so many questions. Then, of course, there's the question on everyone's mind. Then I'll ask the obvious question. Start asking questions. You're the answer, son. Welcome to Mosaic. I'm Doc and I cover a mosaic of topics for fans who love the Man of Steel and look forwards to the future while learning from the past. This episode is part one of a mini-series on how these DC films encourage us to cultivate an open mind. This episode is on the benefits of seeing from multiple perspectives and the pitfalls of being single-minded. This episode, we explore viewpoint diversity. This show dives deep into the Trinity Trilogy for answers and insight as we celebrate the films that give us so much. Reasonable minds will differ, but this is a show for fans who love DC films and who love to chew their food. <laughs> Welcome to a mini-series on cultivating an open mind in a way that's practically beneficial. Not just some ambiguous toleration or spineless, mushy-minded attitude, but concrete strategies for thinking, which are reflected in the psychological truth of these DC films and which you can employ in real life. To be frank, I have a bunch more heady episodes held back because they may be too challenging for many without first a primer on how to approach other ideas. We've talked a ton about metacognition, cognitive biases, psychology, sociology, critical thinking, logic, theory of mind, empathy, and just generally thinking about thinking. So it's not too far off the beaten path. However, because I don't want to leave you susceptible to all ideas as if they're all equally valid, I'm releasing these episodes as a series so you'll reach those practical applications at the end. Nonetheless, there are clear benefits to an open mind, beginning with this episode's topic, Viewpoint Diversity. We're going to learn how pursuing it will get you closer to the truth, make you more persuasive, and increase your growth and possibilities. And we'll see how this is illustrated in Man of Steel, BVS, and Wonder Woman. This reinforces one of the reasons I love these films so much, because of how much truth they contain. Certainly in the past, we've covered their logical rigor and consistency, how much they conform with reality and science, as well as philosophical and emotional truths, ancient values and archetypes that resonate and reverberate through our myths and legends, and which have shaped our civilization and mind. And now, we'll look at how incredibly psychologically true these films are, with how we think, decide, and act. And so to start, let's look at how we learn or develop. Jean Piaget was a Swiss developmental psychologist, perhaps best known for his theory of genetic epistemology. Piaget is second only to B.F. Skinner as the most cited psychologist of the late 20th century. He's held honorary doctorates with 31 schools, including Harvard, Yale, and Cambridge. And his theory of development is still used today, both in the study of child development and to shape curriculums and activities throughout the world. It is well worth researching him on your own, but suffice to say, it's fairly uncontroversial to call him an authority. Piaget identified two complementary types of learning, assimilation and accommodation. Assimilation is placing new information into our pre-existing mental structures or schema. For example, if you deem somebody your enemy and you were to learn that they did something evil, you will process this information easily 
because it slots neatly into your pre-existing concept of your enemy. Accommodation, however, is more difficult. It's when the new information doesn't fit our pre-existing mental structure or schema, and they have to change to incorporate this new information. For example, if you learn that your enemy selflessly protected somebody you loved, you're forced to either disbelieve the new information or change your mental structures to make sense of that possibility, to acknowledge that your mental model is wrong or insufficient, and to undo, change, or modify your presumptions to be more nuanced. Accommodation is more difficult, especially the more emotionally invested we are. So we're inclined to ignore, reject, or deny new information or to run away from accommodating circumstances. And this is a problem if this new information is accurate and can benefit us. Let's see how this plays out in these films. This is, of course, non-exhaustive, but we'll select a few examples illustrating from these films, starting with Man of Steel. So implicit in these two ways of learning is, of course, a third possibility, which is that you don't learn. Assimilation and accommodation are processes for learning, but you can encounter new information and simply refuse it, reject it, ignore it, and not learn. That's a phenomenon known as active informational avoidance. Hi, my name is David Hackman, and I'm a PhD candidate in the Department of Social and Decision Sciences at Carnegie Mellon University. Active information is that you know the information would be useful and interesting to you, and it's also available at low cost, or it may even be costly to avoid. If you still choose to not get that information, then we would call it active information avoidance. Active information avoidance means that you are actually willing to incur some cost to avoid the information. I'm George Lowenstein, professor of economics and psychology at Carnegie Mellon University. George and David, along with co-author Russell Corman, recently released a giant paper all about active information avoidance and all the different ways that we exhibit this, in many instances, counterintuitive behavior. It requires two elements. We have to be aware that the information exists and we have to have either free access to it or even better, we have to be willing to pay or incur a cost to avoid being exposed to it. So you might imagine that the number of calories in a particular dessert are really useful information to have, especially if you're on a diet. You know that this piece of cake has, you know, 600 calories. Maybe you won't eat it after all. And so in one study, they gave people the option to find out what the number of calories in a particular dessert were. And what they found was that people who were dieting were actually more likely to avoid that information. So if you're trying to watch your weight, you really don't want to know how many calories there are in it. And then when they told people anyway how many calories there were in it, and people who are dieting were then much less likely to want that piece of cake. So the idea here is that you want to avoid the information exactly because you want to eat that piece of cake. <laughs> you know if you find out you won't eat it, but you really do want to eat it. We've all done this at one point or another, whether dieting, during dating, or dreaming of an upcoming film, despite signs of distressed production. <laughs> we don't learn if we're not willing. And such is the case with Krypton's counsel and Jor-El's warnings. Do you not understand? Krypton's core is collapsing. We may only have a matter of weeks. I warned you. Harvesting the core was suicide. It has accelerated the process of implosion. Our energy reserves were exhausted. What would you have us do, El? Look to the stars. 
like our ancestors did. He told them what would happen and gave them new information, but it was dismissed, disregarded, and denied. They didn't learn. They actively avoided it because accommodation isn't just hard on the mind, but in action as well. If you accept the information, it will demand that you act, change, behave differently, and that was too difficult. They didn't want to admit that they were wrong or change the way their world worked. To excuse themselves, they say, what would you have us do? And Jorel refers back to their ancestors, the wisdom of the past, prior schema already prepared to deal with this kind of information. One of the reasons to not so quickly dismiss mythology and religion is because they have long-standing schemata for dealing with the chaotic, unknown, and apocalyptic in psychologically true ways. Whereas the miraculous may cause an existential crisis in some, for others it provides schema capable of absorbing inexplicable information. For example, Mrs. Ross demonstrates the assimilation of the bus rescue. My son was there. He was in the bus. He saw what Clark did. I know he did. I'm sure, I'm sure what he thought he saw was... was an act of God, Jonathan. This was providence. Even without the supernatural, we experience things of a reality-breaking nature, where the hero's journey and the cycle of sacrifice, death, and rebirth provide ways of coping with the integration and incorporation of the new, unnecessary for a static and unchanging, completely known and comfortable life. There's no journey if you stay in the shire or on the farm. There's no sacrifice or death if all is concretely content. Growth and maturation is universal. Here is Joseph Campbell speaking with Bill Moyers. A spiritual hero who has learned or found a mode of experiencing the supernormal range of human spiritual life and then come back and communicated it. It's a cycle. It's a going and a return that the hero cycle represents. But then this can be seen also in the simple initiation ritual, where a child has to give up his childhood and become an adult, has to die, you might say, to its infantile personality and psyche and come back as a self-responsible adult. It's a fundamental experience that everyone has to undergo. We're in our childhood for at least 14 years, and then to get out of that posture of dependency, psychological dependency, into one of psychological self-responsibility requires a death and resurrection. And that is the basic motif of the hero journey, leaving one condition, finding the source of life to bring you forth, in a uh, richer or more mature or other condition. So that if we happen not to be heroes in the grand sense of redeeming <clears throat> society, we have to take that journey ourselves spiritually, psychologically inside us. That's right. Pushing on and into new, challenging information can be difficult. Let's look at these lines with Laura. But if the ship doesn't make it, he'll die out there alone. <laughs> I can do it. I thought I could, but Lara, not it is here. Krypton is doomed. It's his only chance now. It's our people's only hope. What is her pre-existing structure? She knows that Krypton is doomed and that she must send him away. They've already planned on this, and Jor-El is merely reiterating it. So what's the new information? For Lara, it's holding Cal in her arms. Now that he's in the world, seeing his face pressed against her, the smell of a newborn, all flooding her with a newfound appreciation for the reality of Cal's being. 
and her profound attachment to her son, born of her body after carrying him for months, this is not likely to assimilate. She can't just slot all that love and attachment into that scheme and ignore it. Instead, realistically, it is the pain of accommodation. The pull Lara feels to keep her son doesn't fit her foreknowledge and pre-existing schema to send him away. And she acknowledges the difficult, near impossibility of reconciling this. And so note that the failure to accommodate isn't all bad guys and the willfully backwards. Please, have a little compassion, show a little grace, extend a little understanding to people attempting to absorb information that's painful to accommodate. We see the psychological truth again. At age 13, Clark first attempts to reject the new information outright, and then he proposes ignoring it. You're the answer, son. You're the answer to are we alone in the universe. I don't want to be. And I don't blame you, son. It'd be a huge burden for anyone to bear. But you're not just anyone, Clark, and I have to believe that you were that you were sent here for a reason. All these changes that you're going through one day, one day you're gonna think of them as a blessing, and when that day comes, you're gonna have to make a choice. A choice of whether to stand proud in front of the human race or not. Can I just keep pretending I'm your son? You are my son. But Jonathan wisely helps Clark accommodate this information. Clark's schema must change, but not his sonship. Jonathan affirms that in words and deeds and even unto death. Jonathan does a great job of opening Clark's mind, preparing his perspective to give him mental structures capable of assimilating Jor-El's info dump later in the film. I am your father, Cal, or at least a shadow of him, his consciousness. My name was Jor-El. Cal, that's my name. Cal L. It is. I have so many questions. Where do I come from? Why did you send me here? Clark readily absorbs the information because Jonathan prepared him to. Clark is expecting answers to slot into his burning questions. But somewhere out there, you, you have another father, too, who gave you another name. And he sent you here for a reason, Clark. And even if it takes you the rest of your life, you owe it to yourself to find out what that reason is. Jonathan encouraged Clark to run to, rather than run from, these unknowns. You owe it to yourself to find out, and one day you'll see this as a blessing. Jorel's commission is consistent with Clark's upbringing, like in Matthew 5.14. Imagine the pain of accommodation if Jonathan had hid the truth or scapegoated God instead. There are many more examples in Man of Steel, especially as it's a first contact story, but I want to at least touch on the other films. So again, we talked about the two forms of learning and the added nuance of refusing to learn. So let's add one more nuance in how we will force the information to assimilate all to avoid accommodation. In other words, because accommodation is difficult, sometimes we'll reframe, reformulate, or remodel incoming information to fit a pre-existing worldview. This is expressly wrestled with by the talking heads in Batman v Superman. We, as a population on this planet, have been looking for a savior. 90% of people believe in a higher power and every religion believes in some sort of messianic figure. And when the savior character actually comes to earth, we want to make him abide by our rules. We have to understand that this is a paradigm shift. We have to start thinking beyond politics. Are there any moral constraints on this person? We have international law on this earth 
Every act is a political act. Is it really surprising that the most powerful man in the world should be a figure of controversy? Uh, to have an individual engaging in these state-level interventions should give us all pause. Human beings have a horrible track record of following people of great power down paths that led to huge human atrocities. We have always created icons in our own image. What we've done is we project ourselves onto him. The fact is, maybe he's not some sort of devil or Jesus character. Maybe he's just a guy trying to do the right thing. We're talking about a being whose very existence challenges our own sense of priority in the universe. And you go back to Copernicus, where he restored the sun in the center of the known universe, displacing Earth. And you get to Darwinian evolution, and you find out we're not special on this Earth, we're just one among other life forms. And now we learn that we're not even special in the entire universe because there is Superman. There he is, an alien among us. We're not alone. With Clark, we see the reluctance to accommodate during the bathtub scene. They held hearings about what happened. They're saying that- I don't care. I don't care what they're saying. The woman I love could have been blown up or shot. Think of what could have happened. Well, think about what did happen. I didn't kill those men if that's what they think, if that's what they're saying. Well, I'm saying I want to understand what happened. I'm saying thank you for saving my life. I'm saying there's a cost. I just don't know if it's possible. Don't know if what's possible? For you to love me and be you. Clark initially tries to reject the new information. I don't care what they're saying. Then he manipulates the new information to be assimilated into wrongful accusation. I didn't kill those men if that's what they think. So as long as he can characterize the hearings as wrongful accusation, then he can put it in its slot and move on. But unfortunately for him, Clark was raised too well. He checks his assumptions before moving on. He says, if that's what you're saying, instead of stubbornly insisting on what Lois was saying and sticking to the easiest, most convenient interpretation, he actually bothers to challenge himself by being open to listening. If you say... If that's what you're saying, you're inviting comment and possibly correction. You're leaving open the door that they'll say, no, that's not what I'm saying. And indeed, that's exactly what Lois says. No, I'm saying that I want to understand what happened. She's saying that the issues at heart are larger than the specific wrongful accusation. And despite his attempts to distract Lois from those larger questions, we know he takes them to heart because the next time we see him, he's entertaining commentary from the news. Because the time has come for the world to hear the other side of the story. They say the Superman is a hero. Okay, but who's hero? If Superman were here right now, what would you want to say to him? That my family too had dreams. To look him in his eye and ask him how he decides which lives count and which ones do not. It's about those larger questions, and Clark takes them seriously enough to seek her out and consider her viewpoint. This is someone actively pursuing viewpoint diversity compared to the blind-as-a-bat Bruce so narrowly focused on his own perspective and so rudely awakened when confronted with the Martha mind bomb. You see a similar single-mindedness with Diana in Wonder Woman and how hard it is to accommodate finding out that our failings can't be faulted on Ares. Diana. No. Diana. We can talk about this later. No. I need you to come with no, me. No, after everything I saw, it can't be, it cannot be. They were killing each other. 
Killing people they cannot see, children. Children. No, it had to be him. It cannot be them. Diana. Clark extraordinarily has the humility to look and see if he might be wrong. Throughout these films, we see Clark consulting with others. He talks with Jonathan, Martha, Lois, Father Leone, Jorel, and Swanwick in Man of Steel. In BVS, Clark consults with Lois, Martha, Jonathan, and the media, and he even intends to talk to Congress. Clark speaks with the everyman, the cops, the victims, the poorest of the poor and the richest of the rich in interviewing Bruce Wayne. He knows that superhearing, x-ray vision, and super senses are no substitute for earnestly listening to people. If you do what Clark does, you expose yourself to a variety of views and differing perspectives. And that means that you're going to be told that you're wrong or have to listen to people you don't agree with. Bruce Wayne calls him a clown threatening to burn it all down. And the talking heads call him a state-level political actor. Of course, that's unpleasant and frustrating. You can hear it in his voice when he talks back to Bruce, or you can see it in his face when he's watching the news. Why subject yourself to this pain? There are a myriad of reasons, but let's just focus on three. One, viewpoint diversity gets you closer to the truth. Two, viewpoint diversity makes you more persuasive. And three, viewpoint diversity promotes your growth. So benefit one is that viewpoint diversity gets us closer to the truth. And this is expressed in the film by Senator Finch when she says good is a conversation. As tempting as it is to assume that we are the arbiters of all that is true, across the show I hope I've shown how unreliable our intuitions can be and how susceptible they are to many forms of cognitive bias. We're incredibly good at justifying, advocating, and supporting what we want to believe, selecting evidence, and discrediting anything that threatens our current beliefs. And this means that we tend to be partially wrong on almost everything to at least some degree. And there we will remain unless we allow our positions to be challenged. As John Stuart Mill wrote in On Liberty, The only way in which a human being can make some approach to knowing the whole of a subject is by hearing what can be said about it by persons of every variety of opinion, and studying all modes in which it can be looked at by every character of mind. No wise man ever acquired his wisdom in any mode but this, nor is it in the nature of human intellect to become wise in any other manner. The steady habit of correcting and completing his own opinion by collating it with those of others, so far from causing doubt and hesitation in carrying it into practice, is the only stable foundation for a just reliance on it. For, being cognizant of all that can, at least obviously, be said against it, and having taken up his position against all gainsayers, knowing that he has sought for objections and difficulties instead of avoiding them, and has shut out no light which can be thrown upon the subject from any quarter, he has a right to think his judgment better than that of any person, or any multitude, who have not gone through a similar process. In the Old Testament, we have, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. And in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul asks, If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? Commenting on the need for diverse types, functions, and roles, extolling diversity over jealousy over position or prominence in the church. And surely you've heard the Indian parable of the blind men and the elephant. 
and so on and so forth. There are countless examples of how others shore up our imperfect access to the truth. I'm just going to mention one particular one as it pertains to peer pressure, crowd dynamics, and being a dissenting minority. We'll reach this psychological truth two ways. First, by way of fable and a story over 180 years old. And second, through sociological science and studies showing the same. The story should be familiar. First published in 1837, The Emperor's New Clothes is a short story by Hans Christian Andersen. And we may revisit it in a future episode, but for now, remember that it is a child, free of guile and societal expectations or pressures, who points out that the emperor has no clothes and makes him a laughing stock. And it turns out that this storybook observation is scientifically supported. Dr. Tally Chereau is a neuroscientist and a professor at University College London. We found in our experiments, and we did many experiments, we find very, very, very strong conformity. It comes to about 70% of the time people would change preferences, they would change memories, they would change judgments to go along with the crowd. But here's a really important fact, which is they do that in cases where everyone else agrees. If there's at least one other person who thinks differently, then people stick with their own opinions. So that means that one other person in the crowd that says something different, that's enough for other people to stick with their own opinions to become more independent. So... I'm less interested in the strong effects of conformity for which there are countless interesting experiments we could cite to than I am in how its effects can be broken or mitigated by just one dissenter. In the show notes, you'll find a free online game that models these effects in networks and thresholds. This is why it's so important for you to speak your mind, to share your love, and be an example to others. Because conformity can create false consensus and suppress disconfirming ideas and expressions. In practical terms, if you accept the conventional wisdom that BVS is bad and stay silent, others who find merit in these films will stay silent too. But when you share and connect, you may just spark something powerful and great like Siegel and Schuster or Tolkien and Lewis. More importantly, giving dissenting positions a voice helps us challenge and overcome our own confirmation bias, which is the greatest threat to our ability to perceive the truth. When psychologists study real people trying to reason, what they find is that reason has a gigantic, crippling flaw. It's called the confirmation bias. People don't use their reasoning abilities to find the truth. They use reason to confirm the views that they already hold. Now put people into teams where everyone holds the same beliefs, and the confirmation bias grows into a collective mania. Everyone helps everyone else find reasons why their side is right, further deepening shared bonds. Heaven help any individual who thinks for herself or who looks for evidence on the other side. Such people are called traitors, and groups have many ways of shutting them up. When everyone's beliefs line up, and when dissenters are punished, that's the definition of orthodoxy. Orthodoxy can be great if you're heading into battle and you want everyone marching in lockstep, but what if your goal is truth rather than victory? What if you actually wanted to help students overcome their confirmation bias and learn about the perspectives of others? What if you wanted to create a community of researchers who could actually study and solve social problems? In other words, what if you wanted to create a university? Would you want orthodoxy? Or would you want its opposite? Heterodoxy, where multiple views are not just permitted, but encouraged. 
In a heterodox university, each person can still use their reasoning powers to find reasons why they are right and others are wrong. But here's the brilliant thing. Each person becomes the solution to someone else's confirmation bias. This is why universities must have viewpoint diversity. Viewpoint diversity is the only reliable way to get around confirmation bias. Viewpoint diversity is the secret to a great education. It may not always be comfortable, but when ideas collide, we learn, we grow together. Everyone gets smarter. If you only have one perspective, pursue one perspective, and everyone around you affirms that same perspective, well, then your beliefs tend to be naive and unchallenged, unsophisticated, and immature. There's probably no better illustration of this than Diana's black and white positions before she's gone out into the world. She's a little judgmental, impulsive, and oh so certain of everything until her ideas and ideals get challenged by others, experience, empathy, and tragedy. Letting the rubber hit the road, a attempting to put principles into practice and having to be open to others and their issues expands her worldview, gives her positions greater nuance, and makes her convictions stronger and substantive. She can stand from a powerful position of personal knowledge and perseverance instead of naive insistence. And that leads us to our second benefit of viewpoint diversity, becoming more persuasive. When you're closer to the truth, grasp the subject better, understand multiple perspectives on complicated and contentious topics, you will be more effective and impressive in conversation. Otherwise, it doesn't take much for people to see right through you. You're a puppet or a parrot and perceived as foolish, naive, and clearly don't know what you're talking about. The emperor has no clothes. Dr. April Kelly Wassner is a professor of political science and chair of the Department of Politics, Philosophy, and Legal Studies at Elizabethtown College, shares her findings. I think we can point to trade protectionism in the marketplace mm-hmm. of ideas. Looks at this variable of whether or not you have confidence in your civic skills and your civic knowledge. And what we find is that that correlates pretty strongly and is a good predictor, even with controls, mm-hmm. of political tolerance. So if you think you know a lot, relative to other people. If you think you can hold your own in a political conversation, Mm -hmm. you're more tolerant than people who are insecure about their civic knowledge. So I think the perception of these college student protesters is that they're, you know, ideological radicals who have these strong opinions. Mm -hmm. And yet what the data shows is that wanting to shut down other voices actually reflects an insecurity in your ability Mm -hmm. to defend your own. The decline in civic knowledge, I think, is a big factor in political intolerance. You can pull up any number of Pew or Gallup surveys Mm -hmm. that look at people's civic knowledge and you see young people really don't know some of the basics about the Constitution, about free expression. And so it could just be that they don't know that there are these protections. I think they also don't have the historical perspective on free speech Uh to appreciate it, not as a tool to oppress, but as a tool of the oppressed. So they don't understand how important the First Amendment was to things like the civil rights movement. That context is important when you're thinking about the importance of free speech and balancing that against protection of equal rights. College and universities aren't doing any better. The Uh American Council of Trustees and Alumni did a review of core curriculums at the top I think it's a thousand, might be more, Uh colleges and universities, Uh only 18% require a course in American government or American history. So they Uh don't have the civic skills to engage in conversation and and hold Uh their own and have the Uh confidence that they can participate in a marketplace of ideas and come out the winner. So then Uh you want to shut things down. In a 1974 essay, Milton Friedman made a similar observation, quote, 
You cannot be sure that you are right unless you understand the arguments against your views better than your opponents do. End quote. <laughs> we can see this insecurity bubble up as anger with Zod or Bruce. They have no shortage of conviction and certainty in their perspective, but lack sound arguments when challenged, resorting to volume, losing tempers, and running from the debate. Contrast this against Jonathan, who has the humility and quiet confidence to admit uncertainty. Maybe. Much more on that next episode. When you're perceived as naive, whether you are or not, you won't be taken seriously. In BVS, Perry routinely mocks Clark for being seemingly out of step with reality. Why aren't we covering this? Poor people don't buy papers? <laughs> people don't buy papers, period, Kent. Perry, when you assign a story, you're making a choice about who matters and who's worth it. Good morning, Smallville. The American conscience died with Robert, Martin, and John. The press has to do the right thing. You don't get to decide what the right thing is. When the planet was founded, it stood for something, Perry. And so could you if it was 1938, but it's not 1938. WPA ain't hiring no more. Apples don't cost a nickel. Not in here, not out there. You drop this thing. Nobody cares about Clark Kent taking on the Batman. Batman accuses Superman of that same naive worldview. I bet your parents taught you that you mean something. That you're here for a reason. And in Wonder Woman, Hippolyta also highlights how naive Diana is. That was a story, Diana. There's much you do not understand. Men are easily corrupted. There's so much. So much you do not understand. But as a counterexample, in Man of Steel, we see that Clark's fathers instill into him an understanding of an imperfect and nuanced world. Jor-El tells him they will stumble they will fall. Jonathan tells him people fear what they don't understand, and that his heritage will be a huge burden to bear. Clark is not naive, but courageous since he fully understands the costs, risks, and sacrifice entailed in trusting humanity, and nonetheless does so anyways. So I can't be trusted. The problem is, I'm not sure the people of Earth can be either. Sometimes you have to take a leap of faith first. The trust part comes later. That kind of trust is effective and persuasive. Professor Francis Frey teaches at Harvard Business School and talks about the elements of building trust. Now, trust, if we're going to rebuild it, we have to understand its component parts. The component parts of trust are super well understood. There's three things about trust. If you sense that I am being authentic, you are much more likely to trust me. If you sense that I have real rigor in my logic, you are far more likely to trust me. And if you believe that my empathy is directed towards you, you are far more likely to trust me. When all three of these things are working, we have great trust. But if any one of these three gets shaky, if any one of these three wobbles, trust is threatened. So the most common wobble is empathy. The most common wobble is that people just don't believe that we're mostly in it for them, and they believe that we're too self-distracted. And it's no wonder. We are all so busy with so many demands on our time, it's easy to crowd out the time and space that empathy requires. And for us, if we have too much to do, we may not have that time. But that puts us into a vicious cycle, because without revealing empathy, 
it makes everything harder. Without the benefit of the doubt of trust, makes everything harder, and then we have less and less time for empathy, and so it goes. Logic wobbles can come in two forms. It's either the quality of your logic, or it's your ability to communicate the logic. Now, if the quality of your logic is at risk, I can't really help you with that. <laughs> it's like not in this much time. <laughs> but fortunately, it's often the case that our logic is sound, but it's our ability to communicate the logic that is in jeopardy. The third wobble is authenticity, and I find it to be the most vexing. We, as a human species, can sniff out in a moment, literally in a moment, whether or not someone is being their authentic, true self. So, in many ways, the prescription is clear: you don't want to have an authenticity wobble. Be you. Now, if you think about her three elements of trust—empathy, logic, and authenticity—they map onto those ancient Aristotelian metrics for persuasion: pathos, logos, and ethos. After all. Trust is persuading another to be open to you. Viewpoint diversity feeds into all three. You gain a better understanding of how they feel. You have access into how they think, and they help you catch your own logical fallacies and biases. And finally, pursuit of this means that you are sincerely listening, genuinely curious, and humbly vulnerable. And of course, this makes you more believable, and in turn, more persuasive and compelling. This is the bedrock of relationship, of communication and collaboration. Trust represents the best part of you, extending itself out to be received by the best part of others. This is your authentic, optimistic, and vulnerable self to be received in kind. Trust is Clark telling Lois the most painful story of his past, knowing that she could pass judgment, but instead given compassion, understanding, and an ally. Trust is Superman putting his reputation in the hands of General Swanwick in Washington instead of dictating it from on high with all the power that he possesses. Trust is telling your persecutor and would-be executioner that there is someone that he can save because, as wrong as he is right now, you still believe that at his heart he would want to save an innocent, exposing your ultimate weakness in the belief of his best self. We can see how persuasive and transformative this kind of trust can be, and I also want to add courageous because you can extend trust from a place of naivety where you just don't know any better. But that's just a lack of fear or ignorance of fear, where you're unaware of the cost, consequences, or concerns. Courage isn't the absence of fear or less fear; it's being fully aware of the risks. Fears and doubts, but overcoming that to act regardless, accepting it as part of the cost, taking responsibility, and knowing full well that you could get burned, and sometimes do. The hero's journey doesn't mean much if the dragon blows bubbles and can't actually burn you. Not everyone survives the ascent up the mountain, and that's what makes it meaningful, worthwhile, and significant. In BVS, we see Superman perform a montage of miraculous feats, which are given minimum screen time because lifting stuff and rescuing people isn't his dragon. Without risk of being devoured, it isn't a true dragon to slay. No, it's not lifting stuff in BVS. Superman's dragon is maintaining moral courage. Faith in others, trust in a flawed and unworthy people—that is not naive, but self-sacrificing to his utmost. This is killing the dragon. 
you have fears and things. This is the dragon. That's exactly what that's all about. At least the European dragon. This is the negative one that cuts it out. So what you're saying is if there are not dragons out there, and there may not the, be any... The real the dragon is in you. And what is that real dragon? That's your ego holding you in. What's my ego? What I want, what I believe, what I can do, what I think I love, and all that. What I regard as the aim of my life and so forth. It might be too small. It might be that which pins you down. And if it's simply that of doing what the environment tells you to do, it certainly is pinning you down. And so the environment is your dragon as it reflects within yourself. Is it any wonder that after Superman shows his most profound example of trust, giving his life to say, this world is worth it, that the world in turn is persuaded to finally trust him without being naive or reservation, knowing full well the monster that he could become, the tyrant that he could be, the threat and problem that he could pose, but nonetheless embracing Superman as their savior and hero, finally. This is, of course, the persuasive power of trust. We'll talk about the agony of betrayal in a future episode, but let's turn to our third benefit. Viewpoint diversity offers opportunities for growth and learning. It's self-evident that you can't learn anything new if you aren't exposed to anything new or different from what you already learned, already know, and already believe. Inherent in that is that the hero has to have the courage and conviction to cross the threshold into the unknown. As Joseph Campbell puts it, trials and revelations. In this culture of easy religion, cheaply achieved, it seems to me we've forgotten that all three of the great religions teach that the trials of the hero journey are a significant part of it, that there's no reward without renunciation and without a price. What the real problem is, and that is primarily thinking about yourself and your own self-protection, losing yourself, giving yourself to another. That's a trial in itself, is it not? Mm -hmm. There's a big transformation of consciousness that's concerned. And what all the myths have to deal with is transformation of consciousness. That uh, you're thinking in this way, and you have now to think in that way. Well, how is the consciousness transformed? By the trials. The test that the hero undergoes. or certain illuminating revelations. Trials and revelations are what it's all about. There is risk. There is cost. There is sacrifice and dragons. Viewpoint diversity will not protect you from opinions that challenge your worldview, nor will it prevent others from disagreeing with you. And it does not stave off the discomfort of modifying your schema to accommodate new information. However, hopefully, you see the opportunity it presents by way of the hero's journey or ascending the mountain. That after you confront, conquer, adapt, or incorporate your journey, you're better for it and can bring back something of value. But again, let's not be naive. There is a chance that you can't come back. Diana's call to adventure means never returning back to Themyscira. There is a chance you fall in battle. Superman's resurrection is remarkable rather than the rule. Not everything is progress or productive. We'll talk a lot more about growth next episode, but another quick caveat is this is not licensed to say that all positions are equally valid, of equal merit, or deserving of equal attention. That's a topic for another time, but the emphasis here is not to disregard viewpoints because they're different. Along the way, you're going to develop criteria, but here are some to consider when you're looking at a viewpoint. Will that viewpoint help you grow intellectually, relate to an active discussion or ongoing debate, challenge you, grant insight into a widely held position, 
grant insight into a long-standing position? Does that viewpoint have well-reasoned arguments by well-informed authorities? And does that viewpoint make you more knowledgeable generally or more persuasive in the discussion? You aren't necessarily looking to be convinced, but to be exposed to thoughtful arguments, which in turn make you more thoughtful having considered them. Most times engaging a troll, for example, will not accrue any of these benefits to any significant degree. But of course, you need to be careful about your own biases and motives because it's all too easy to reason in reverse from a disagreement in position that they don't deserve consideration. And one way to check yourself on that is to separate the motive or position from the reasoning or evidence. You're not just looking to confirm your ideas, but to test them, to develop expertise, to develop a toolbox and not just use the hammer that you like, to understand context, complexity, nuance, and history. And in this way, you create encounters and opportunities to grow. Okay, let's summarize what we learned and wrap this up. When faced with new information, we talked about two ways you can learn and two ways you might not learn. We learned about Piaget's concept of assimilation and accommodation, where you slot new information into pre-existing mental structures or you readjust your schema to accept the new information accordingly. We highlighted how the latter can be more difficult and more painful, and so we go to great lengths to avoid it, either by rejecting or ignoring this new information outright, or by mischaracterizing, manipulating it, or altering it to fit our preconceived notions more readily. So in terms of a quick application of these concepts, we can apply them to how many approached incorporating Man of Steel into their personal schema. For those with broad, nuanced, deep, and well-developed Superman structures, it would be easy to assimilate many of Man of Steel's more allegedly confronting features. For example, having structures for Elseworlds or familiarity with the Golden Age, or a broad appreciation for varied portrayals or prior stories with the same specific elements, a product of an open mind that encompasses all of Superman's 80 years, is easily going to have a place for Man of Steel or the experience in being flexible enough to make a place for it. Alternatively, if you have relatively few cognitive structures dedicated to Superman to begin with, you may have very little problem accommodating this particular take. A common narrative is that you thought that Superman was boring and unrelatable, but it's easy to update those beliefs with this new information. However, if you have a narrow, fixed, long-held, and emotionally wrought cognitive structure in your mind, you will resist learning at all. Either you will reject Man of Steel entirely, or you'll warp your perceptions of it even beyond actual fact to fit your preconceived notions and justifications for rejection. You might say that he never smiles, that there's no hope, that he's no hero, and that he murders with glee to support your assimilation of Man of Steel into your mental discard pile. And yet, rather than sit in an echo chamber to reinforce our confirmation bias, if we pursue viewpoint diversity, we can get closer to the truth, become more persuasive, and grow. For example, it's easy to inflate the divisive critical reaction to Man of Steel into saying that it was a bad film. And if no one speaks up for these films, you could easily mistakenly believe that everyone feels that they're bad. But stepping out to be the diverse viewpoint breaks the spell and allows others to speak up too. Now conversely, if you loved Man of Steel, 
you are at a high risk of dismissing all detractors as ill-informed or bad-intentioned or basically stupid and evil. By entertaining viewpoint diversity, you set aside that defensiveness and judgment, and you may see that some of their objections pertain to alleged discontinuity or plot holes. And then you can meaningfully engage by providing answers and increasing your own appreciation from a position of knowledge rather than insecurity. It's difficult to be persuasive from insecurity because we see right through bad motives, poor logic, and insincere attitudes. We learned that if you engage people with empathy, logic, and authenticity, or pathos, logos, and ethos, you extend and earn trust which makes conversation possible, even if the outcome is uncertain or far from assured. Viewpoint diversity does not protect you from challenge or disagreement, and neither the hero's journey nor extending trust means that you'll get your way. But trust is a bridge to relationship. Allowing yourself to be challenged and possibly to change is the very definition of growth, and it is an act of courage and not naive dreaming. Knowing something that is challenging, controversial, and difficult, and daring to do it anyways, rather than doing it because you're oblivious to rejection, is brave, not blind. Okay, that's it. I'm doing my best to keep these short and sweet. You definitely could apply these ideas more comprehensively, go way more in depth, but I'll leave that to you and try to keep the tangents to a minimum. I've rambled on long enough, so thanks so much for listening. If you like what you've heard, please share the show and subscribe. I'm Doc, signing off. See you next time. Well, as I always say, reasonable minds may differ. So on the other hand, consider this counterpoint. I wasn't intending to do any notes for these episodes because of how much I had to skip or cut out, but I thought I could add back in at least one practical example onto the end of each episode. So during this episode, we talked about trust and I ran with a recent TED talk because it was available and convenient and it slotted in easily with our earlier discussions on Aristotelian persuasion. From there, it would have been easy to keep combing for and finding reinforcing resources to cite to. However, we should be careful when reducing any large multi-dimensional concept too quickly or tritely, like so many movie breakdown essays might. They tend to pick a few elements or a single focal point and then allege everything wrong through that lens. That's an effective form of persuasion, but I don't want to just promote rhetorical techniques, but modes of thought. Instead of affirming and doubling down on the definitions already in this episode, as an exercise in viewpoint diversity, I asked all manners of sages, seafood, teachers, masters, and minds how they would view, define, break down, or build trust. And I absolutely love the variety of answers and wisdom that they contained. 
They each came at it with a different perspective, which provided their own insights and helped expand the idea to be more robust and more nuanced. For example, I spoke with an economist who immediately tried to break the definition and said that trust was not about you or the other person, but our institutions, fallbacks, and contingencies, which we rely upon and allow us to quote-unquote trust complete strangers transactionally. And that raised an interesting question. Is there any difference between trusting someone or behaving like you do? I spoke with a manager who said trust was about competence and execution. Didn't matter if you liked them, if they were persuasive or empathetic, they just needed to be able to do the job and prove that again and again over time. And he would trust them. I had a counselor tell me that trust was about character and commitment, that even if you had failed many times over and over, and even if you're simple, so long as you have a clear, constant, admirable character, you would be trusted. And a teacher said something similar but still different, that children aren't sufficiently sophisticated to be persuaded by reason or even empathy, but they still trust their parents because they have overwhelming power and authority, but instead of abusing or bullying, they're almost always pursuing the child's welfare and providing for them. And I spoke to an armchair philosopher that said trust was a delusion the world requires to run. (laughs) It seemed to me that these were different kinds and levels of trust in different contexts, despite all using the same word, much like how we can love pizza and our children in the same sentence, but hopefully mean entirely different things. Trusting that I've been given authentic, non-counterfeit change for my 20, or trusting all the drivers in the opposite lane aren't going to swerve into me, or trusting somebody to have and to hold until death do we part seem to be different things in the details. So if I'm not just trying to persuade, but build trust between two people meant to cooperate and work together, what are some of the things I might look for? And once again, psychologist Adam Grant raises five interesting factors which will just fly through. First, time, at least enough to get past surface-level interactions. Second, stress, to peel back appearances and see how we operate under pressure. Third, vulnerability. The key is authentically extending trust before you receive it, that leap of faith. Fourth, stakes, meaning that this all matters, the mission, trust, and authenticity, the gravity, abrogates artifice. Fifth, uncommon commonalities building on specific experiences to make an in-group that excludes others. What's interesting is how you might apply all this to Superman and Batman's 11th hour alliance in BVS. In terms of time, they've barely met face-to-face or in person, but remember that time is a means to an end. It doesn't matter if you work with the same guy for 40 years and just found out his favorite color. Time simply serves as a necessary condition to get intimate, and it's arguable that they've already crossed a lot of those major superhero milestones. They know each other's secret identities, they've shared a supervillain, they've teamed up, they've saved each other, and put their lives on the line. Certainly, they've seen each other under stress at their best and at their worst, so we can check that off. For vulnerability, Superman took that first step. As laid out in the Kryptonite Spear episode, Clark offers up the rescue of his mother Martha, and that's as vulnerable as it gets. It's giving his would-be murderer the same lever that Lex was using on him at the moment. Stakes, there's no question. Each, in their own way, was trusting the other with the world. And finally, uncommon commonalities. Well, we've got the capes, the heroics, and of course, our mothers share the same name. <laughs> You're the answer, son. All different colors, wear different clothes. We speak differently from different zip codes. We're short, we're tall, we're fat, we're thin. 
We're square pegs in round holes, just trying to fit in. Everyone is different. It's really no big thing. It's the differences between us that make life interesting. Those little quirks that make us work are heaven sent. So give a little thanks that we're all different. We're wise. We're weird. We're cool. We're geeks. We're pieces of a puzzle, strangely unique. But put us together. What do you see? The world is our home. One big family. Everyone is different. It's really no big thing. It's the differences between us that make life interesting. Those little quirks that make us work are heaven sent. So give a little thanks that we're all different. Yeah, everyone is different. It's really no big thing. It's the differences between us make life interesting. Those little quirks that make us work are heaven sent. So give a little thanks that we're all different. Yeah, yeah. Give a little thanks 'cause we're all different. You're the answer, son.